Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I'm joined by an attorney who specializes in civil rights cases, particularly high profile wrongful conviction cases. He's a partner at Hale and Monaco in Chicago. Welcome in, Andy Hale. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yes, so Andy, wrongful convictions, they're a real problem in our justice system. And we just had a conviction be overturned this year with Eddie Lee Howard. He's a black man who spent 26 years fighting for his innocence on death row in Mississippi. And he had been wrongly convicted of murdering an elderly white woman in 1994 based on some sketchy bite mark evidence, only to be released off of death row based on DNA testing. These wrongful convictions, how often are they occurring? You know, it's I can't even keep up with them. I I have a uh, Gmail alert for wrongful convictions, and I get one or two emails a day. And I mean, on most days, I don't even get a chance to kind of like, you know, document or catalog the newest case. I mean, it's literally happening every day, every week. There's a new case in another state with another fact pattern, and it's just it just seems like it never ends, and it probably won't end. Um, until you know, we make some changes. Wow, um, that's pretty scary to hear. And something that I want to mention that's not really lost on me is the fact that Mr. Howard, who is innocent, serving those 26 years, he served them at Parchment Farm. That's a former slave plantation that yeah. turned into a prison, and it's known to be one of the most dangerous and brutal facilities in the United States. You know, the well, thought of spending all those years there is wild. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've got, you know, I was able to vacate a conviction for a client, Cleve Heidelberg, that was 47 years. Um, I'm working on a case now for a guy I think is innocent named Chester Weger, it's 61 years. It's hard to think you could spend, you know, half a century um, behind bars. But, but even if you spent a month or six months or a year, I mean, can you imagine going to prison? for any length of time for a crime you did not commit and what that would be like. And can you imagine if you did that for a long period of time, how that affects you? And and I mean, it's just, it's really hard to kind of think about. Um, and that's why I really got attracted to this part of the law because I just think it's so important. Wow, it sounds absolutely terrifying. And I want to talk a little bit more about the client that you're working on right now, Chester Weger. And I understand he was convicted of three murders in 1960, where these women were hiking near Utica, Illinois. This right. So in Chester Weger's case, this it happened in 1960. So think about that. I mean, I wasn't even born yet. It was kind of like, you know, I don't want to say the O.J. Simpson case of the day, but it was a, a national news story that was written up in Life Magazine. But three, three uh, suburban housewives um, from Chicago area went hiking and were bludgeoned to death in this beautiful state park. Chester Weger, who was a 21 year old dishwasher at the Starve Rock Lodge, uh, wound up confessing to the murders, uh, recanted once he got a public defender, but he got convicted. And uh, there was no physical evidence linking him to the crime. In fact, some hair evidence specifically excluded him. But his case was prior to two landmark decisions, uh, Brady versus Maryland, which says that the prosecutors have to turn over exculpatory evidence, and Miranda versus Arizona, which basically gives you the right to counsel and you know the Miranda warnings. 
Those Supreme Court cases hadn't even been decided yet. So the prosecutors in this that state didn't even have to turn over exculpatory evidence to Chester Weger. Um, it's it's a really crazy, I hate to say fascinating because there's, you know, when a wrongful conviction case, it's tragic. But it's a case I'm trying to um, you know, unravel for Chester. And uh, it's a huge undertaking. Absolutely. And you had kind of already indicated that over the last um, X number of years that we've had really a revolution in terms of the laws and individuals rights uh, when they are charged and when they are facing conviction. And we've also learned that witness identification is inherently unreliable, especially when it is cross racial. So has any of this knowledge really changed the rate at which wrongful convictions go down? Well, I think you know what you're seeing now is you're seeing a lot of these older cases where you know, like like Chester Uyghur is obviously 1960, but it used to be you know probably just it's just recently that people now realize there's false confessions, right? So I've had a few clients. Al Story Simon was one. Um, Chester Uyghur is another. Uh, we now understand as a society, people can falsely confess to a crime they didn't commit. For various reasons, I think the leading factor is the threat of death. You know, the death penalty. Um, we now know witness misidentification um, is probably the most common factor. We now know witnesses get it wrong a lot. They're just not very reliable. Um, and I also think, you know, historically, uh, and what has to change is I think police officers oftentimes are too quick to kind of come up with a narrative or a suspect. Uh, they are reluctant to change course if evidence uh, comes up that kind of indicates their suspect isn't guilty. So, you know, that we have to get better about, you know, the training and the way, you know, law enforcement approaches the cases. Absolutely. And I also know that you worked in uh, the release of Jerry Miller, an innocent man who spent close to 25 years in prison for rape, robbery, and kidnapping of a woman. And it was later cleared by DNA evidence, and that was in 2005. And you know, it seems that when these years are taken off of someone's life, what kind of compensation is provided in order to try to right this wrong? You know, in that one, um, I actually was on the defense side of that one. The city of Chicago retained me um, in that case when he brought a suit against the city of Chicago. But you are correct; he was misidentified by two witnesses. He was exonerated by DNA evidence. Um, and you know the compensation. You know what what you'll hear lawyers say. You know, and I think is that you know the person would rather have the years back, right? They don't. They don't. You know, want the money in the sense that you know they would rather have their freedom. But all a jury can do in a civil case is award damages. There's no amount of money that can compensate a person for having lost years of their lives. You know, and and. You know, I've seen cases where you know um, exonerees are awarded you know a million dollars a year, and you know the damages can be high. But at the end of the day, it's just it's it's just not it's not something that can replace your freedom. You know, there's just you can never get that back. Absolutely, and all the things that are missed over those years, whether they're family gatherings or saying goodbye to family members in funerals and whatnot, those things they cannot be compensated by money. Um, But also something that really struck me when I started looking more into this issue is the racial implications. It seems, you know, black people being 13% of the US population, but about 47% of exonerations, 
per the National Registry of Exonerations. And also finding out that black people are convicted of murder are about 50% more likely to be innocent than other convicted murderers. Why isn't the role racism and unconscious bias being given more weight when it comes to the fact finding process and conviction? Well, I think it should. I think I think there is a there's there's definitely um, racism in law enforcement. You know, some uh, you know some that's inherent, some that's that's not. Um, and I think you know that's an issue that law enforcement agencies are going to have to deal with. And I think you know I've seen cases, some of the cases I've worked on. Uh, where I felt like the police had their guy, he happened to be African American, and they're like, okay, we're gonna close the case on this. You know, we're gonna just, we're gonna, you know, close the book. And um, I had a case too where Terrence Haynes, he got, he got, I, uh, we got him exonerated after 20 years in prison. He got charged with murder in a case where it was self defense. If that was a white person, in my opinion, who shot a guy trying to attack him, I don't even think the case gets charged, you know? Um, so it's definitely a fact, it's definitely a substantial factor and, and people have to recognize it, acknowledge it and start talking about it. Absolutely, and you know, hey, there seems to be a lot of change coming with this new administration coming in. How do you think that's gonna impact the work you do or will it impact the work you do? Well, I'd like to see, I think the biggest thing that has to happen is more cities and municipalities have to get conviction integrity units that are dedicated to reviewing cases of potential wrongful conviction. You know, you're seeing more people do it, but most most cities don't have it. And if they do, they have to really take an honest look at cases. I think there's a reluctance still to admit past mistakes. And I think you know, cities across the country need to set up these units to take a hard look at cases. Absolutely, thank you so much for sharing that. And can you please let the followers know where they can locate you on social media or just on the World Wide Web? Yeah, so our, our website is hailmonaco.com. Uh, I'm Andy M. Hale ESQ on Twitter. Um, and you know, we post a lot of things about some of our cases. Uh, I've been involved in some documentary movie projects, trying to shine a light on wrongful convictions. and. You know, I'm gonna keep doing that work to just try to get justice for people wrongfully incarcerated. Wonderful, thank you for your work, Andy, and thank you for joining us. Uh, glad to be here, thank you for having me. Take care. It's Adrian Lawrence and welcome to the conversation where we are joined by multinational filmmaker and award-winning director who recently enjoyed her national broadcast debut of her latest documentary, A Woman's Work, The NFL Cheerleader Problem. Welcome in, we go. Hi, thank you for having me. Fantastic, now we thank you so much for joining us. Your documentary, A Woman's Work, you know, it follows two former NFL cheerleaders who are filing a first of a kind class action lawsuit against their teams and the league alleging wage theft and illegal employment practices. What was it like documenting such a historic fight? You know, it was really an honor for me to go on this journey with both Lacey and Maria, the women who filed these lawsuits. Um, when I first started it, it was really about going on this journey with them, discovering, you know, the changes that they would have to face and the fight that they had to uh, make throughout this lawsuit. But I think the, the as the years went on, and this film took about five years to make, I really grasped more and more sort of the. Um, Sort of context and and the 
sort of scope of the story and its importance for gender equality, for the world of sports and for women in general. Absolutely, is very important. And fortunately, we have a clip from the film for our viewers to enjoy. Here it is. Game day doesn't completely make up for the fact that we work for nine months straight with no paycheck. You want me to volunteer my time so you can make money? Why would a grown woman want to be a cheerleader anyway? Show off your body. We had to stand there and do jumping jacks. Sometimes there was just nothing you could do. You're not cheering this game. They don't treat football players this way. They don't even treat mascots this way. Women work hard and they're constantly having to say it and prove it. Football and cheerleading, I mean, nothing's more American than that. Well, unfortunately, nothing's more American than cheating workers out of an honest day pay, too. Yikes, that is quite the observation in terms of our capitalistic system. And something that really does this capitalism thing well is the NFL. It's quite the beast. You know, one of the largest, if not the largest and the most profitable of the four major pro sports leagues. And they have the money to pay cheerleaders without a doubt. But they refused to do what was right unless they were sued for it. And I can't imagine that they were very welcoming in terms of your request for interviews and information. So what was that experience like when it came to trying to get intel from the NFL? Well, for me and my team, we really approached it as making this film about these women. Um, you know, my whole team, we're actually mainly women, women of color making this film. So we really wanted to tell the story from their perspective from day one. And in terms of um, looking into the perspective of the teams of the NFL, I think their actions really spoke uh, louder than words. So when we went into the courtroom to document the hearings, um, we heard the arguments of their lawyers against why they should not be paying these women, against why they thought you know, these women were not employees. So we heard that loud and clear through those publicly available legal proceedings. And so I think that was something that was really a spine in the film. Absolutely. And I did have the good fortune to virtually meet one of the leading voices of the women in the fight, Lacey Thibodeau. And really, she stepped forward knowing that she may never you know, be able to cheer again in the NFL or any other major sports league by virtue of the fact that she's standing up for herself. That was huge. And as someone who's gone against a major company that plays by and fighting against what is wrong, it was not easy for me and I know it wasn't easy for her. So as you're documenting these experiences and this journey, what was that like in terms of capturing these difficult moments? Um, I think it was really tough. Um, like you said, um, when I encountered Lacey and Maria, when I asked them permission to film with them and really tell the story, they were at such a vulnerable time in their life. You know, they had lost the only community really that they'd known their whole lives, and they felt like black sheep of that whole community. Um, so I really had to tread carefully and sort of build that trust from the ground up. Um, and a lot of the times it was just me and a camera hanging out with them in their house, um, just talking and chatting. And sometimes when you go through something, you don't really, you don't have time to digest what is going on, what is happening to you. And I think um, as the filming continued, they really saw the sessions with me, um, the conversations as a way to reflect, as just to take time to reflect on what has been happening and sort of their journey on this crazy ride. And what a ride it's been. A Woman's Work debuted 
at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2019. And it's received incredible praise across the board recently, having its national kind of premiere on PBS. What has it been like to receive all of this praise and these accolades for what is a historic first of its kind type of fight? I think for me, the dream since I started making this film and for my entire team as well, is to really inspire conversations and to make unlikely connections. Um, Just like the film connects cheerleading with um, labor rights, with gender equality. um, I think the film in its screening and its distribution has brought together so many people from whether it's the legal field, whether it's lawmakers, athletes, women, who care about you know making a difference for themselves and their communities. I think that's been the thing that is so gratifying to see and the amount of coverage that we've gotten and the conversations that have started because of the film. That's been amazing. Absolutely, and I feel so blessed to have been a part of some of these conversations. And you know, when you look at the future of where this film goes now that it is available for people to access, where do you want it to go and what do you want it to mean to people? Um, so the film is actually the, the feature length version of the film is actually available to pre-order on iTunes and Amazon right now. So that's a bit longer than the version that was broadcast on PBS. Um, I, I again, I would love the film to reach young women, um, women who are in college who are just stepping into the workplace. Who I would love to reach, you know, dancers and cheerleaders. And there's a huge community in the. US and internationally of men and women who love dance and cheer. And I want them, I hope to inspire them to really question some of these um, harmful systems that we all find ourselves in right now. And to really think about a vision for the future that you know they feel good about and that is beneficial to everybody. Yes, now is an extremely important time as we're just seeing with the job loss reports uh, coming out of COVID and how they were all sustained and suffered by women. Having women in the workplace and women in positions of power and having that economic independence is so incredibly important for our society. And I think a lot of people need to know that and have that information. And the thing is, you're not new to bringing society award winning documentaries. You co-directed and produced viral celebrity into a platform for social change. And it was broadcast on PBS, Emmy winning award winning series, America Reframed, it was amazing. And given that your films really thrive on innovation, social awareness and imagination, what's next for you? That's a big question. Um, I've also been working on another documentary about uh, foreign migrant workers that actually work on farms in Canada, in Ontario, Canada. So I have to yet to finish that film. Um, I look forward to finishing that. And then otherwise, I've been starting and developing a project that's more um, personally focused. The first documentary I actually ever made was a short personal documentary about generations in my family dealing with censorship in China and in Canada. So right now I feel the desire, I feel drawn to going back to something personal, especially during this time of the pandemic where I have most of my family still in China. Fantastic, that is huge. And I also know you have those Canadian roots, eh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, It's great that you have that dual citizenship just in case you have to get out because Lord knows I have been thinking about it myself. But hopefully things will change (laughs) for all the better. And we are so much all the better for having you with us. So can you please tell the audience where they can find you if they're looking for you on social media? Um, I'm mostly active on Instagram and my handle is at 
Y-U is rain, U is rain. Wonderful, and where can they find more information about the documentary? So we're on all social media platforms and our handle is a women's work doc, D-O-C. And then our website is a women's work doc.com. So you can find us there. And again, the film is, avail- is available to pre-order on iTunes and Amazon. Fantastic, thank you for joining us, We We really appreciate it. Thank you so much.